Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 5, Episode 2, Saicho's Big Journey. As we discussed in the last episode, the Great Council of State in the late 700s was eager to escape the overbearing influence of the six schools of Buddhism in Heijo-kyo, but this should not be understood as a reaction against Buddhism in general. If there was a point in time when Buddhism could have been successfully extracted from Japan, that moment had passed long before 794. The imperial court used Buddhism as a means of communicating official edicts to distant corners of the nation through rural temples, and the sovereign's ritual calendar was filled with Buddhist rites. At the beginning of the Heian period, there existed a rather stark religious divide between noble and commoner. While the Kuge followed the path of the Buddha, the common people had largely kept to the way of kami worship, praying to local deities for high crop yield, good weather, and protection from disasters. While the common Japanese people might find themselves drawn to Buddhist ritual for the sake of its spectacle, clapping and praying at remote shrines and altars tended by hereditary ritualists was still the most popular vehicle of spirituality. During the reign of Empress Shotoku, the Buddhist schools undertook an almost invasive effort at inserting Buddhist relics and objects of worship into kami-centric shrines. But after she died, there was a reaction against this from the traditional priests, who promptly removed the items as the court quietly tried to move on. As we discussed in the previous episode, Emperor Kammu had encouraged Buddhist monks to practice their religious expressions on remote mountaintops and in dense forests. While this declaration may have been partly intended to put more troublesome monks at arm's length, where they could not interfere as readily in political affairs, it's possible he may also have intended to make Buddhism appear more similar to the indigenous cults in the eyes of the common people. Many kami were nature spirits, and thus their shrines were in remote locations. Perhaps if the commoners started encountering Buddhist monks and teachers in these kinds of places, they would show greater enthusiasm for the religion of their ruling class. While his true intentions behind these actions are a matter of debate, Kamuten no ultimately did succeed in popularizing Buddhism among the common castes and even reinvigorating the style of Buddhism practiced among the elites. This came about because of two young Buddhists named Saicho and Kukai. Saicho was born in 767 in Omi City, located in the central Kansai region of Honshu. A large number of Chinese immigrants had settled in this area before this time, and Saicho's family claimed not just mainland descent, but descent from an emperor of the Han dynasty. No evidence exists to corroborate this story, but people in Saicho's time may have believed it, 
and it would no doubt have added to his prestige if they had, since pedigree was such an important factor among Japanese aristocracy. In 780, when he was 13 years old, Saicho became a disciple of a Chinese monk named Gyohyo, and the next year he shaved his head and officially became a novice. Six years later, at age 20, he vowed to uphold the monastic precepts and became a fully ordained monk at Todaiji Temple in Keijo-kyo. Then Saicho abruptly abandoned the Buddhist establishment in the capital and went north, encamping upon Mount Hiei and seeking enlightenment in the solitude of the woods there. Soon after arriving on Mount Hiei, Saicho composed the following prayer. So long as I have not attained the stage where my six faculties are pure, I will not venture out into the world. So long as I have not realized the absolute, I will not acquire any special skills or arts. So long as I have not kept all the precepts purely, I will not participate in any lay donors' Buddhist meetings. So long as I have not attained wisdom, I will not participate in worldly affairs unless it be to benefit others. May any merit from my practice in the past, present, and future be given not to me, but to all sentient beings, so that they may attain supreme enlightenment. This is known as Saicho's Prayer and it is referred to as the Ganmon in Japanese. Like-minded monks gradually flocked to Saicho's mountaintop retreat, spending their days seeking enlightenment, studying the sutras, and discussing Buddhist matters with one another. Mount Hiei was significant to Saicho's family, as his father had climbed its peak years before and prayed to the mountain Kami, Sanno, that his pregnant wife would give birth to a son. The resulting child was Sai Chol, which might partly explain his early interest in religious affairs. The fact that he honored the kami of the mountain while he sought Buddhist awakening demonstrates that for most Japanese people, there was no intrinsic conflict between the indigenous cult and Buddhism. Mount Hiei is located northeast of Heian-kyo, something that may have been a factor in choosing that location after Nagaoka-kyo proved unsuitable. The direction of northeast, as I mentioned in the last episode, was regarded by Chinese geomancy to be the origin of fell spirits and demons, so having a monastic community to the northeast of the new capital provided in the minds of the imperial court a sort of shield against spiritual misfortune and catastrophe. The community on Mount Hiei attracted the attention of court officials, and many visited the retreat. One such official was Wake Hiroyo, the son of Wake Kiyomaro, whom you might remember from last season, was punished by Empress Shotoku when he reported that the Usa Hachimangu Shrine had rejected Dokyo as a suitable candidate for emperor. While serving as the head of the Imperial University, 
Wakehiroyo met with Saicho and was so impressed that he invited him to take part in a lecture series at the Wake clan's private temple on Mount Takao near Heian-kyo. Word of his wisdom and knowledge of many schools of Buddhist thought began to spread and the leaders of the Nara schools began corresponding with Saicho through letters. Eventually, he became prominent enough to warrant the attention of the sovereign, and Emperor Kamu discussed with him at great length the possibility of reforming Buddhism in a way that brought all the various schools and sects under a single big tent. Saicho was eager to do this, and asked the emperor's permission to travel to China and study at a school which sought to do the very same thing, unify Buddhism under one umbrella. The emperor granted permission, and in 804 he boarded one of the ships embarking on a diplomatic mission to Tang Dynasty China. Once in China, he studied at the Tiantai School, which we discussed briefly in Season 3, Episode 10, Peninsular Entanglements. Saicho spent his days on Tiantai Mountain, copying sutras to bring back to Japan and learning from Dao Sui, the seventh patriarch of Tiantai Buddhism. He received many esoteric teachings while on the mountain in China, which are teachings meant only for high-ranking monks and not usually available to the general public. He returned to court after first disembarking at Dazaifu in northern Kyushu for his readmittance and travel provisions. Emperor Kamu's court was eager for his return. In addition to the various sutras and commentaries he had transcribed, he is also reputed to have brought back something which became an indelible part of Japanese culture, which endures to this day. Green tea. When Saicho did return in 805, just eight months after he had departed, the emperor's health had begun to fail. Saicho worked quickly, pulling every available string at the court to ensure that his new school would gain official recognition. At the beginning of 806, he succeeded, and the Tendai Lotus School was officially founded. The Tendai school was meant to be a big melting pot where all the schools of Buddhism could practice and still acknowledge one another as fellow travelers upon the same road. It was not without its own doctrines, however, and it placed the Lotus Sutra as the supreme document under which all other sutras, commentaries, and teachings were considered subordinate. I'll post a link on this episode's supplemental blog post if you'd like to read an English version of the Lotus Sutra for yourself. In addition to the elevation of the Lotus Sutra, the Tendai school also taught that any person, any being at all, had the potential to become a Buddha within their own lifetime. This was a stark contrast to the other schools, particularly the powerful Hoso school, whose principal defender was a firebrand named Tokuitsu. Saicho and Tokuitsu exchanged increasingly heated correspondence, and Tokuitsu published several arguments against the potential Buddhahood inherent in all things. The Hosso doctrine, which was preeminent among the Nara schools, taught that there were five categories of beings, 
each of whom could only become what the seeds within them allowed. One of the categories was even beings who could never achieve enlightenment, because the seeds within them prevented awakening. Emperor Kammu was probably very pleased with the establishment of the Tendai school, but his health continued to deteriorate. After he died in 806, his oldest son took the throne as Emperor Heizei and was decidedly uninterested in Saicho or his new school. As a result, the Hosol and other Nara schools conspired against Saicho and ensured that the Tendai school did not receive any new ordinations during Heizei Tenno's reign. For a variety of reasons which we shall explore in a few episodes, Emperor Heizei did not sit on the throne for very long. He abdicated in 809 and left the throne to his brother, who reigned as Emperor Saga. Luckily for the Tendai Lotus School, Saga Tenno shared his father's interest in Buddhist reformation and was sympathetic to Sai Cho's cause. He reinstituted ordination for the Tendai, and Sai Cho was grateful but not satisfied. If future ordination was dependent upon the whims of the sovereign, then the Nara schools might interfere again. He lobbied Emperor Saga relentlessly to be allowed an independent ordination process, one still subject to the imperial court's ratification, but not dependent upon the better angels of Todaiji. In 822, his request was granted, and Tendai was a fully independent movement. Atop Mount Hiei, the followers and supporters of the Tendai school began to build. By the end of the Heian period, an impressive temple complex with many specialized religious structures would be erected. This temple became known as Enryakuji, and it still exists today, though the buildings have been rebuilt in the aftermath of destructive catastrophes, which we shall discuss in a few seasons. The Tendai school would achieve far greater success in Japan than its mother school of Tiantai ever received in China. Throughout the years, Tendai succeeded in becoming a popular form of Buddhism among the common people. In future seasons, we'll discuss the many sects and splinter groups that developed during the later periods, and nearly all of them originated from the Tendai school. But Tendai was not the only new school to emerge in the early Heian period and threatened the Nara school's increasingly tenuous grasp on relevance and political clout. On one of the other embassy boats that departed for China in 804, there was another devout monk who would bring back a different form of Buddhism. Next time, we'll explore the life and teachings of Kukai. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web ahistoryofjapan.com. <laughs>
Why not kill two birds with one stone and visit our official merch store? Check out the ever-growing selection of designs inspired by Japanese history at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com. Thank you for your support.